There was talk about the Beatles coming to um, the States in 64. Brian Epstein, knowing how much the Beatles um, idolized Elvis, admired him, um, got a hold of Colonel Parker to see if there was any kind of arrangement that could be made, you know, to get them to meet. Everything was quite secretive. You know, not a big deal was made about it because no one wanted it to get out in the press, especially Colonel Parker, and he would say how, you know, no one could say anything. He waited last minute to tell us all the plans and what was happening. Elvis kind of just went along with the program. I mean, he was, he was looking forward to meeting them. It was in the evening. We were all prepared and ready. The guys didn't want to show too much excitement because, you know, of course, this is Elvis. You know, and it's like, oh my God. You know, they were very careful not to overdo it about the Beatles were coming, but they were very excited. What was shocking was that fans were lining up and coming around the gate and knew something was going on, knew the Beatles were coming. And we were going, well, how could this happen? This was all very secretive. All of a sudden, there's like over 100 fans out in front of the gate waiting for them to come. And we learned later that Colonel planned all of that, but we just couldn't figure out how they all knew. And Jerry Schilling and I greeted them at the door, and we led them into, you know, kind of showed them around a little bit briefly, and then Elvis was waiting for them in the den. They were so cute. They were so cute. They were so excited, but so nervous. You could hear a pin drop when they walked in. You, you know, they looked around the room, they came in, you know, they're kind of like looking and, you know, all they cared about was, you know, seeing Elvis. They were excited, but holding it back. They wanted to be respectful, but I was amazed at how shy they were. Uh, we walked into the room. Elvis was sitting on the couch and got up and said hello. They were speechless. They were totally speechless. They were truly like kids, you know, meeting their idol, especially John Lennon. John was shy, timid, looking at him. I mean, I, I really believe that he just couldn't believe that he was actually there with Elvis Presley. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Seven, this is roll 29, five, four, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, but you know we're coming out. It's like, it's like we're like we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And then what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone over so many songs, but I've got like my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or albums. of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 41. Welcome back to Season 5, January 8th, 1969. In a few minutes, we'll be back on the soundstage at Twickenham, where after a very productive morning, the Beatles are going to get bogged down with technical problems and procrastination. 
But this show is all about the conversations and there's so much to get our teeth into here. A big shout out to the generous WAD fans who left something in the tip jar at buymeacoffee.com. So thank you again to My Chameleon Days, Paul Schmitz, Brian, Kat and the anonymous someone. You guys are incredibly generous and you make all the hard work worthwhile. If you'd like to make a donation, just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wodpod w-o-d-p-o-d the link is in the show description it's a one-off tip not a subscription and you won't get inundated with cold calls promise this episode's podcast recommendation we didn't start the fire an interesting premise dedicating each episode to a line out of billy joel's 90s hit of the same name which in itself is a potted history of the 20th century In particular, check out the episodes for the line British Beatlemania, which feature extensive interviews with the legend that is Mark Lewison. Here, as usual, is a recap of episode 40. The Beatles return from lunch. As ever, when Ringo is away from his drum kit, Paul jumps on it. John jams along with him, and George returns to his usual task, tuning Lucy the Les Paul. When Ringo returns to his drums, Paul briefly picks up the bass before George asks Kevin for the Fender bass, which signals that they will be rehearsing Maxwell's Silverhammer. Paul moves to the piano and George to the bass. The tape cuts and the next thing we hear is a run-through of Maxwell, but without the anvil. Paul has been hammering on this before lunch, so we know it's present, but Mal appears to be absent at this point. As with Bathroom Window earlier, George thinks this song should be faster. Paul counts off another run-through, but they get lost in the whistling solo section. They persevere, but then George tests his mic, saying, Hello, hello, which makes Paul think he wants to stop. They're struggling to hear their voices at the moment. It turns out one speaker isn't plugged in on the PA system. Paul counts off another attempt. George and John forget the whistling solo again. When Paul reminds them, they whistle the verse and not the chorus but they struggle through until the end anyway. Paul works alone for a while, practicing the ending, until John finally snaps. He suggests, sarcastically, echoing Paul's earlier suggestion to George, that Paul play the song as a solo performance. Paul counts off another. Once again, they falter after the first chorus and the performance breaks down. Mal returns to the anvil, but can't find his hammer. When he does find it, Paul counts off another run-through, this time with the anvil accompaniment, though it's barely audible. Paul is impressed. Mal has wrapped his hammer in silver foil. They briefly discuss which of his two hammers sounds better. Apparently it's the larger one. Once again, Paul can't hear the vocal. They start again, but George's guitar falls off the drum riser, causing John to comment. His comment can be heard, but not the guitar falling. This footage can be seen in the Get Back documentary with some suitably expensive sounding sound effects added. Paul and George work on the harmonies together as George struggles to play bass and sing at the same time. Paul counts off another run through. After this, John practices his harmony on his own to a jazzy accompaniment from George and Ringo. At the end, George jokingly sings rhythm and blues, a phrase he'll return to. Satisfied for now with Maxwell, Paul asks George for his list of songs and you hear them flicking through it. George asks if they'd like to learn a new one. John seems enthusiastic. 
discussing instrumentation, George suggests a guitar on the large mariachi band bass guitar. Glenn thinks he knows where to get one. The rest of the conversation is drowned out by John tapping tunelessly on his fretboard. Glenn asks John to move position so that his microphone doesn't face the speakers, and that's where we left them last time. But, as we're about to hear, there are more technical issues about to happen with the PA system. Let's rejoin the Beatles on the Twickenham soundstage. George is demoing I, Me, Mine for John. John questions the length of the song, being rather short. And how high pitched it is for George. comments are less than encouraging. Run along, son. We're a rock and roll band, you know. and Yoko have received a painting which John is unwrapping. Unfortunately, there's very little info on this. It gets hung on the boom mic, Dolly. You can see it in some pictures. There's a swing tag on the back of it, but John doesn't know who sent it. Thank you. 
Johnny's back to teasing George. Have you any idea what we play? Then he suggests accordion for the song. George plays along with this. Okay, George, have you any idea what we play? Can we just follow that copy or the one for the piece of paper that you have? Yeah, take that. Oh, uh, it's just like accordion. Yeah, that would be. Have you not Paul's accordion? I, I, me, my. Mal needs to copy out the lyrics and asks George for his copy of them. John asks Mal if they have Paul's accordion. According to Mal, Paul does indeed have an accordion, but it's not here. George says, dismissively, if it's not here, fuck it. John admonishes Mal a little to make sure he has all the instruments here. All of you, uh, have we got a proper electric piano yet? Uh, got the PMS. No, I mean, look, other groups play on stage with them, so we must be able to have it so that we can play with an electric piano and be heard. All you do is plug it in. You know what happens every time we go to the studio. John inquires after the electric piano, presumably the Fender Rhodes keyboard they will use at Apple. Mal says they have the pianette. We'll cover this when it gets used later in the session. But this keyboard dates from the help recording sessions. John has commented about the superiority of other bands' equipment before. Here he's lobbying for a decent electric piano. By his comments, the pianette is not up to standard. George states, it's just an old broken one. So I mean, I've seen people on telly playing them, you know. John makes reference to Blossom Deary, the jazz singer, playing one on television, although in typical fashion he changes her name to Blossom Beanpost. Paul corrects him. Reviewing the painting and talking to a crew member, Paul says... John will explain this to you. John will explain this to you. See, it's a pair of red men chasing a white woman and make a Japanese smile. It's bloody bomb is that move. John says, See, it's a pair of red men chasing a white woman and making a Japanese smile. The painting is abstract, so John is being sarcastic. John now plays the role of auctioneer for the painting. What am I bid? Who did it? asks the crew member. John says, I don't know. Paul offers, I'll give you a threepence for it. That's three old pennies. John begins whistling the ballad of Bonnie and Clyde, a hit for Georgie fame. What am I bid? Paul to save me, I'm alright. Five bid so far. Fifty shillings. Bonnie and Clyde were shamed in number armpits. Inspired by the Warren Beatty Faye Dunaway movie, The Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde was written by Mitch Murray and Peter Callender and recorded in December of 1967 by Georgie fame. This isn't the first time John Lennon has sung a Mitch Murray tune. 
1962, George Martin had insisted the Beatles work up an arrangement of Murray's How Do You Do It, which they duly recorded, before rebelling and demanding Martin release their self-penned Love Me Do instead. 50 shillings have been offered. You can have it for nothing if you want it. Yeah. Just don't tell whoever I sent it. Paul takes over the auction. The crew member offers 50 shillings. Not a small sum. It'd be the equivalent of 52 pounds in 2023. John offers to give the painting away. Paul teases John about his business acumen. The next bit of conversation is captured on camera in Peter Jackson's documentary. Haven't you written any Hello? Yeah. No. Hello? Hello? I'm going to be faced with a crisis in When I'm up against the What's wall, Paul, you'll find I'm up my bed. Yes, there you go. Yeah, I know, go, I know, I know, but I wish you'd come up with the goods. Well, look, I think I've got Sunday off. Hello? Yeah, well, I hope you can deliver. Hello. I'm hoping for a little rock and roller. Yeah, I was hoping for the same thing myself. Oh, Sammy loved his mammy. She hammy dammy dammy. Okay. Something with a whiff dog loogle. The mic. A whiff dog loogle. Just stop the goddamn feedback! Paul attempts to take John to task about his lack of material, but he's quickly thwarted by the presence of the boom mic directly over their heads, capturing their conversation. In the background... Ringo is trying out the new echo unit through the PA, making this whole situation farcical. Paul gives up trying to get a response from John. They're both acting up for the cameras. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Hello, brother. Campanada. Hello, mother. Hello, father. A novelty record by Alan Sherman. Hello Mother, Hello Fudder, subtitled A Letter from Camp, was performed by Alan Sherman and co-written by Sherman, Lou Bush and Amil Curry Poncielli in 1963. Inspired by letters of complaint that he'd received from his own son Robert, who was attending Camp Champlain in Westport, New York, it was set to the tune of the ballet dance of the hours from the opera La Gioconda. It reached number two in the Billboard Hot 100 and has been selected for preservation in the United States National Recording Registry. Interestingly, the song's reference to a boy called Leonard Skinner was cited as one of the two sources for the band name Leonard Skinner. Hey, you boys want to use that in a record one day? It's a good idea. Stop it! All they're getting through the PA is a whole lot of feedback. Michael jokes that they should use that in a record one day. Paul agrees. Johnny's losing patience with the sound. the sound that kills? Michael referring back to the conversation with Glyn on the sixth about sounds that can kill. Paul says, this isn't one of those. But then he changes his mind. No, certain bass frequencies. That's one of them, that's one of them. Probably injure us, Mal. It sounds like Mal is the one trying to get the echo to work through the PA rather than Glyn. 
We discussed the Vincent Echo unit early in the series, so it's worth revisiting this little feature, narrated by two years ago me. Unlike the tape echo units used in the early 1960s, most notably by Hank Marvin of The Shadows, the Binson Echo Rec didn't rely on tape to generate its effect. Binson developed a system using a durable steel band wrapped around a drum, direct driven by a rubber drive wheel, like a high-end record turntable. The steel band would pass multiple tape heads that recorded then played back at different intervals, creating a repeat effect. The Beatles first encountered the warm, thickening effect it had on their vocals at the Top Ten Club in Hamburg. Binson, an Italian company, made much more than just echo devices. They were an electronics business making high-quality amplification and PA equipment. The Binson unit Peter Eckhorn bought for the Top Ten may have been part of a public address system for the club. The Beatles were certainly nostalgic for how they sounded through good quality equipment in that venue. At no point in their touring career did they supply their own PA. They always relied on whatever was provided by the concert hall or even stadium. This of course led to them and their audiences barely hearing a thing above the screams of their fans. The Ekarek on its own was not a cheap product to buy, costing around £140. By contrast, Paul's Hofner bass cost him £60 new. It's a clear sign that Eckhorn was investing in his club to attract the best bands. This could be an authentic Italian Binson unit. The Pink Floyd famously used these on stage and in the studio to great effect. But it's also possible that they got hold of a rebadged version called the Echo Master, sold in the UK by the Beatles' favourite music shop, Sound City. John asks to be put on the echo so he can do Bebopalula. You can hear him say, is that as loud as it'll go? John and Ringo are talking to each other over the echoing PA. John, having been munching a sandwich during his conversation with Paul, can now be heard to order something with gorgonzola cheese and a cup of coffee, which he pronounces New York style as coffee. John then sings a very rough approximation of I Mean Mine. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Certainly wonderful. Oh, when I 
Just had a bit of echo. Ringo is impressed with the more subtle echo. John comments, When I was in Hamburg during the war, they put the microphone next to a bloody strip club. John seems very agitated and eager to carry on. Ringo appears to be drumming on the mic, whilst in the background someone's banging repeatedly on the anvil. Trying to get the echo. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> no. 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 Glyn is involved now. John says, "Maybe you've got to take them further away." Presumably the speakers. Due to the fact that this feed is just John and Ringo's mics, we're only getting part of the conversation. No. No. Maybe no. No. Pomp and circumstance. Ringo's comment is most likely a reference to the programme George watched last night. John thinks it's too bassy, but we can't hear what he's hearing. I'll put a bit of bass on then. Hello, hello, hello. Everything gets too complicated. John makes a reference here to playing his electric guitar in the house with the telly on like Elvis, whose birthday this is today. They, of course, met Elvis in 1965. August 27th, 1965. 
The Beatles are staying in a mansion in Benedict Canyon, rented from Zsa Zsa Gabor, during a break in their tour of North America. From here, they made their way to a mansion in Perugia Way, Bel Air, Los Angeles, being used by Elvis Presley while filming Paradise Hawaiian style. Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, had finally relented after many requests from the Beatles and Brian Epstein for them to meet with the King. As Paul relates, Colonel Tom would just show up with a few souvenirs and that, that would have to do us for a while. We didn't feel brushed off, we just felt we deserved to be brushed off. After all, he was Elvis and who are we to dare to want to meet him? Both artists being pretty much nocturnal by this point, the Beatles arrived around 11pm and were shown to the large circular living room bathed in red and blue light, containing a jukebox, bar, games tables and Elvis on a crescent shaped couch plucking a bass guitar in front of a colour television with the volume turned off. The encounter was reportedly somewhat stilted. The starstruck Beatles, who were also rather stoned, made little conversation. Eventually, Elvis abruptly broke the silence. If you damn guys are gonna sit here and stare at me all night, I'm gonna go to bed. Tony Barrow, who was present, noted it was John who spoke first, bombarding Presley with awkward questions. Why do you do all those soft-scented ballads for the cinema these days? What happened to good old rock and roll? The ice didn't break in the early stages at all. The boys and Elvis swapped tour stories, but it hadn't got going. According to Barrow, guitars were sent for and the Beatles and Elvis jammed. Speaking in 1995, George and Ringo had little recollection of this, though Paul claimed that he took an interest in Presley's bass playing. So there I was. Well, let me show you a thing or two, El. Suddenly he was a mate. He was great, talkative and friendly and a little bit shy, but that was his image, we expected that, we hoped for that. But, similar to what John relayed at Twickenham, the enduring image is best summed up by Mal Evans. They had a record player with the arm up in the middle, the muddy waters just seemed to be playing all night, and the colour TV in one corner with the sound off, and there was Elvis playing bass, and Paul and John on guitars, and I was just sat there with my mouth open all night. Oh, come on, let's do something. John is impatient today. Once again, he parodies I Me Mine, though it sounds not unlike Tom Jones's Delilah. Then John attempts Any Umbrellas or The Umbrella Man, a song by comedy duo Flanagan and Allen. The Umbrella Man, often referred to as Any Umbrellas, was first published in 1924, written by James Kavanagh, Larry Stock and Vincent Rose. Comedy duo Flanagan and Allen began performing this song in 1939 and it became forever associated with them. It's just another example of the pre-rock and roll era's influence on Lennon McCartney's songwriting resources.
John again sarcastically says, I'm waiting for the maestro to give me an accordion part. Then he states he just wants to learn the chords and makes an attempt to play some of them. George is distracted looking for an acoustic guitar, once again killing the momentum of the rehearsals. To break the monotony, Paul leads Ringo and John through a run-through of Oh Darling. John tries to follow in the middle section but gets a bit lost. It sounds like John has the words and the chords listed. George is tuning a new guitar, one we haven't heard before. The Fender Kingman Wildwood guitar was Fender's attempt to incorporate some of their best features from their electric models into an acoustic design. Bolt-on maple neck, adjustable bridge saddles and a six-a-side headstock. Here's a tongue twister for you. What was wild about the wood of a wildwood guitar? Well, developed in Scandinavia, the wood grain of the guitars was stained in a unique way. European beech trees were injected with a dye in their root system, while the tree was still alive and growing. The dye was carried through the xylem along with the sap penetrating the wood grain. The effect was a dramatic high contrast coloured grain effect. It was available in rainbow green, rainbow blue and rainbow gold. George's example is green. The Wildwood didn't prove hugely popular. They were only made between 1966 and 1971, and few examples exist today. The guitar was very probably supplied by Fender along with the twin reverb amps and the PA for this project. George spends a fair amount of time finding this guitar. Presumably he'd taken his Gibson J200 home to compose on. He then seems to spend an inordinate amount of time tuning it and trying to get a mic'd up sound before finally giving up. As such, it appears to be the most short-lived Beatles guitar of all, appearing in the Get Back documentary and accompanying book, but not really being used by anyone in the band to make music.
Paul for the first time breaks into Let It Be. John seems to know the chords, or he has them written down. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Paul vocalises the drum part for Ringo. He obliges. Paul shows his appreciation, as does John. Ringo strangely asks, how do I stop? And continues playing. George finally has the Wildwood guitar in tune and is joining in as Paul starts the song again. Judging by the feedback and the occasional appearance of George's guitar, I think the crew are trying to mic up the acoustic. At the moment, Paul has only one verse and a chorus. He doesn't have the descending line before the solo yet. Oh. 
George comments here along the lines of suggesting Paul give the song to Aretha Franklin. Whether this is something Paul intended for the song isn't known at this point, but right now, Paul says, they should do it and give it to her. This casts an interesting light on Let It Be. Had the Beatles rejected the song once before? When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Paul breaks into a pretty terrible Aretha Franklin impression. And in my hour of darkness, she's standing right in front of me. Paul and John have a conversation here about a record shop filled with folk songs like We Shall Overcome. I'm not sure if it's a metaphor, but it sounds like Paul imagines Let It Be as a kind of anthem. The message being, as John points out, it'll be all right. A sentiment he himself has used in Revolution. It sounds like George has given up on the Fender Wildwood guitar already and is once again endlessly tuning Lucy. John plays a little bit in waltz time anticipating I'm in mine. could be wrong here but it sounds like John is saying to Yoko how's your coffee and then he says too big it's a lot with milk send it back then you get all the details in this podcast Impatient as ever, John breaks into his own waltz, Dig a Pony, briefly. Another indication that the Beatles may have rejected Let It Be before is John's comment here. 
Change it to Brother Malcolm and we'll do it. Those were the lyrics when Paul debuted the song during the session for George's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. We'll discuss Let It Be in more detail when we get the first band performance. It's important to note, however, that I Me Mine is not the only song proposed today that gets the dismissive Lennon treatment. Let It Be is captured on tape during a break between the takes of While My Guitar Gently Weeps on September 5th, 1968, the day after filming the promo clips for Hey Jude and Revolution. The song spans the whole period between the germ of an idea for a live performance and the final day's filming for the documentary. On this day in 1968, the verse and chorus lyrics are virtually intact, albeit with Brother Malcolm replacing Mother Mary, but the melody is completely different. Paul plays piano, Ringo drums, Eric Clapton busks along on guitar, and Chris Thomas plays a high-pitched meandering organ. George sings a response vocal in the choruses before interrupting Paul and getting the band and Clapton ready for another take. John isn't present during this session, but as we can hear from their discussions today, he's clearly aware of the song Let It Be, complete with its brother Malcolm lyric. The Beatles didn't record a serious attempt at this song for the White Album. In fact, John appears to have rejected it completely. Here he states they could do it if Paul reverts to his original brother Malcolm lyric. Perhaps the semi-religious overtones of Mother Mary are what John objects to, but it's hard to imagine why he would prefer to rehearse Maxwell's Silver Hammer and not this. And so Paul seems to have filed Let It Be under Songs for Other Artists. Specifically, even at this early unfinished stage, he's decided he wants Aretha Franklin to record the song. But first, he wants to record a demo version with the Beatles, Also, he claims. Where George would get disillusioned with his own material, if he didn't have 100% buy-in from his bandmates, Paul has no such qualms. If he really wanted them to perform one of his songs, he'd coerce, cajole, or otherwise use his drive and force of personality to get them to comply. If that failed, he'd simply record the track by himself. Here at Twickenham, Paul may honestly just want to demo the track for Aretha, or he's using subterfuge to get the Beatles to learn it. That said, Aretha Franklin did cut a version of Let It Be nine months later and released it as a track on her This Girl Is In Love With You album, a full two months before the Beatles version was released. So Paul did get his wish after all. John sings something here very briefly which sounds like a cover of another song but I can't find any source that's been able to identify it. So this one is for the Wad fans. You've come up trumps before. Thank you. 
He then follows this with a riff that's been identified as The Fool, a 1956 hit song for Sanford Clarke. The Fool was written by future Nancy Sinatra producer Lee Hazelwood and Naomi Ford and was released in June of 1956 by Sanford Clarke. It reached number seven in the US pop chart of the day and number five in the R&B chart. It's not 100% certain that Johnny's thinking of Clark's version. There were versions of the song released by, amongst others, Johnny Burnett, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, and more recently, Chris Farlow. The original guitar part for The Fool was played by Al Casey, who had suggested Clark to Lee Hazelwood, and then suggested lifting the main guitar riff from Howling Wolf's Smokestack Lightning, which John Lennon is now playing. Are you going to teach us this happy-go-lucky song now, says John to George, still laying on the sarcasm. After at least half an hour of procrastination, George is finally ready to teach them I Me Mine, but we'll leave this to the next episode. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now.